according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time in John 14. I believe we will wrap up point six with all its subpoints and sub subpoints and be ready for point seven, which will get us into Matt, into uh, John 15. This portion of the life of Christ is so important. I'm considering adapting it for a Sunday morning message at some point. Or maybe by the time we finish Life of Christ on Wednesday mornings, we'll do something on Sunday mornings in the Gospels and uh, adapt the, uh, the discourse messages, for example. Upper Room Discourse, Olivet Discourse, Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 13 Parables, and so forth. Thinking about uh, creating a Sunday morning series based upon that. But we still got another two years to teach Romans, so we're all right. John 14. Actually, uh, when we do wrap up Romans, I do want to go to an Old Testament Hebrew uh, book study. And uh, we may end up doing... Dan will be happy for this. Right now, Isaiah and Jeremiah are my, are my uh, leading candidates for, for that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. John 14. Verses 25 through 31, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But you ain't heard nothing yet. All right. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Everything. You could view that as everything pertaining to his first advent ministry. But I think specifically what's in focus here is everything from 1331 to 1424. From 1331 to 14:24, uh, everything that he has spoken with the departure of Judas, everything that he has spoken to the eleven, preparing them for the church age. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That's a promise for the coming church age. That's a promise you and I take for granted because that's all we've ever known. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in my name. And there will be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Second Advent. There will be the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, for Israel and the, the prophetic office and what they're going to do in the millennium. But this passage isn't speaking of that. This passage is the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit in my name. That is for the royal family of God, the church age. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. In other words... Everything that they're hearing tonight that makes no sense to them tonight, it will make sense to them in the church age when the Holy Spirit comes. He will teach them and He will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. We're going to talk about today. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And it's almost like he restarts the chapter there, isn't it? How did, how did chapter 14 begin? Do not let your heart be troubled. Now he's going to expand upon that. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You're going to be engaged in the angelic conflict. You need to have this provision. You need to have this message, the peace that Jesus Christ provides. All right, let's get started with a word of prayer then to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We rejoice this day one more time as an opportunity for us to assemble together. Father, the phone lines are down. Both phone lines. The primary is down. The backup's down. The fire alarms are not happy at all. The uh, security alarm isn't happy. The Internet's not working. But Father, uh, what a delight to know that our prayer line is never down. And we have instantaneous communication with You. Father, uh, we, do, we do thank you. We do thank you that uh, we don't need a technician to come out and get these things all back up and running by 12 o'clock. Father, we're with you constantly. The line of communication is always open. The line of study is always available. As we uh, open up the Word of God and, and 
turn our attention upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Your Holy Spirit, Father, is going to teach us all things, even the deep things of God. And He's also, Father, going to bring to remembrance all things spoken. Father, I, th- I pray that we would have an understanding of this message. pray that it would edify and bless us today. We thank You and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We are in main point six, if you're following the outline. Jesus' present message will be understood fully in the coming dispensation of the church. We understand that these things as inferior to all things. He he has just given them a brief introduction, just a, a short number of things pertaining to loving one another, pertaining to the rapture, pertaining to... Um, All the things that we see here at the end of chapter 13, first part of chapter 14. uh, By no means is is this material uh, sufficient for uh, the totality of the church age. They're getting a preview. They're getting a, a small snippet of what they're going to need ultimately in the coming stewardship. You have these things, and in the very next verse, you have all things. And which would you rather have? Would you rather have just a, a small assortment, or would you rather have everything? All right, and that's what we have. We have all things. So these things is inferior to all things, and it demonstrates the superior nature of the church. We're going to get all things. We're going to have, remember the idea of here a little, there a little. The idea of of line upon line, precept upon precept, that we get the New Testament to unfold the Old Testament. And we have the complete Hebrew Scriptures to be uh, combined with the complete Greek Scriptures. These things all coming together to form what we, what we have as the completed canon of Scripture, the complete mind of Christ, the all things that have been provided for us, necessary for life and godliness. And we can come to appreciate that. Secondly, point B, the Holy Spirit is the teacher for the church. Uh, if you're here this morning without the filling of the Holy Spirit, I recommend that you uh, fix that. <laughs> so we start every Bible class with silent prayer, giving every believer the opportunity to confess any sin that uh, needs to be dealt with. Confess your known sins, and then you're cleansed of all sins, known and unknown, and uh, restored to fellowship. We appreciate that, because the Holy Spirit is the teacher for the church. And when He tells them this, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, John 14:26. He will teach you all things. That is a revolution in doctrine right there. That is, a, that is an earthquake, theologically speaking. No Old Testament believer would even dream of God the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling a believer priest and teaching him the things of the Word of God. This is something brand new. This is, this is an earthquake, as it were. Everything he's giving them from 1331 onward all the way to the end of chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer, this is all a preview of the coming church age. It is doctrine that is immediately applicable for you and I today in the church, but it's doctrine that they didn't have any grasp of on the night that he gave it. This had to have been the most frustrating Bible class. <laughs> he started in the upper room. They left the upper room. We're going to see that here at the end of chapter 14. He says, uh, uh, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. Judas has gone out to fetch those soldiers. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. And they leave the upper room. See, I hope this is on DVD. I want to see this when we get to heaven and the deleted scenes that we get to see. That you know They went out the, the, the door and they were gone not, not two minutes before Judas and all the soldiers busted in. and Where'd they go? They're gone. All right. And then they're walking through the streets and, and different things. They get on their way to the garden. So uh, chapter 15 and 16 are actually while they're walking on the way to the garden. And uh, then he stops and he up, uh, offers up outside the garden. He offers up this high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And then uh, he actually enters into the garden. He leaves Eight of the apostles outside takes Peter, James, and John with him inside. And uh, we'll see that by the time we get to chapter 18. All right. So that's uh, subpoint B. The Holy Spirit is the teacher for the church. And there's additional scriptures there we looked at last week. I won't go back to them today. But we have it here in John 14:26. It's restated in John 16, verse 13 and 14. We, of course, have our own uh, doctrinal understanding from Paul's epistle in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11 as well as uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 2, verse 20 and 27. And remember, you don't want to twist those. That uh, Some people 
do very damaging things with First John 2 to say, well, you have the anointing and you all know you have no need for anyone to teach you. And, and they use that as their license to skip church or their license to not even join a church, to, to just kind of be a, a believer unto themselves. All right. Out, out there, you know, sitting under a tree or whatever they're doing. That passage does not give you license to to abandon or to neglect the assembling of yourselves together. You are still commanded to to assemble together. You are still commanded to listen to what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. And that anointing will let you listen to that message of what the Holy Spirit says to the local churches. All right. Very important then under point C. Teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. Teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. Now, I know I taught you this last week, but I'm going to go ahead and reinforce it this week. And I'm going to reinforce it this week by reminding you of what we did last week and enabling you to correlate, correlate what you're learning this week to what you learned last week. In other words, putting it together, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It's the nature of how we learn doctrine. You have to learn it by building it upon what you already have learned and building upon what, uh, what you're learning now is going to take you to what you're going to learn tomorrow. But the idea is that you have all things. All things. And all things is more than you think it is. And say, well, how can all things be how can all things be more than everything? See, I thought everything is everything. It is, however, there's more to it than that. It's like our understanding of omniscience. What does God know? Everything. But everything is more than you think it is. Okay? And uh, we need to have a, a fuller appreciation for omniscience and sovereignty and foreknowledge and everything else. So let's look at it here. What is this, why does it say all things and then adds to it? It says that he will teach you all things and what would be the point then of bringing to your remembrance all that I said to you? If, if he's teaching me all things, then that should be enough. Why do I have to remember something else if he's going to teach me all things? See, and here's, yeah, here, here's what we have to do. It's, it's, it's not simply enough to learn the information. If you think of all things as everything, individual items of doctrine, individual points of information, okay? Uh, think about everything that you know. But each of those is just simply uh, data points. They're just basically points of fact, points of information. All right? Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you know that? Okay. But... It's not enough to simply be taught that and to know that, but you have to correlate that. In other words, you relate it with something else that relates to it. You co-relate, all right? Why is the virgin birth important? Why? Okay, so he was born of a virgin. He was also born without sin. Do those relate? <laughs> Why do they relate? Why are they not unrelated data points? See? Is one causative of the other? Or is one of them explanation for the other? If he was not virgin born, would he be sinless? Okay, see, you're starting to put this together. This is why it's important. Teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. And it's vital that we not only learn from the Holy Spirit, but we also have to put it together with what we have previously learned. And for our sake... We've previously learned it also by the Holy Spirit. You and I have learned nothing without the Holy Spirit. Not true for these guys. These guys had a vast doctrine and residency that they accumulated as Old Testament believers in the stewardship of Israel. They had been taught by their priests. They had been taught by their Levites. They had been taught by their uh, scribes and their, and their rabbis. But all of that teaching, they'd been taught by their parents and whoever else had taught them. But they had been taught without the permanent indwelling and teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. They had learned a whole realm of doctrine without the New Testament church age priesthood. I think this is something very similar to what Paul had to do after the Damascus Road. Paul had a lot of knowledge, a lot of information he had gained as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
He was a walking Bible encyclopedia. But, not, but what did he have to do the moment he receives the Holy Spirit there when Ananias lays hands on him and he receives his sight? More than just his physical eyeballs came alive. All right? He receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, could you imagine if you were not a, a believer or you didn't have divine viewpoint, but you had the, the Old Testament memorized? How much fun would it be then to go back over, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth, you know, go back over what you know now with the Holy Spirit to guide you into the truth. Think about how awesome that would be. All right, so teaching is reinforced by reminder for correlation. And we have this here. I think this is a, a remarkable um, indicator for a methodology of, of uh, Bible study and even uh, uh, just an epistemology. How do you know anything? You know, how do you know anything based upon learning it and based upon relating it to other things that you do know? All right. Then point D, new ground moving forward. The peace of Christ is the great bequest for the church. The peace of Christ is the great bequest for the church. It's what he bequeaths to us. Peace I leave with you. I bequeath to you. It's, it's his will and testament to the church. And of course, you can't receive a testament and a will is not executed until the, the death of the one who is bequeathing it. Jesus, of course, died and we receive this peace. Uh, and of course, he doesn't stay dead, but that doesn't change the fact that we still have his inheritance. We still have his bequest. The peace of Christ is the great bequest for the church. It's promised here again in chapter 16, verse 33. It's going to come back again in John 20. Verses 19, 21, and 26 after his resurrection. Um, of course, the New Testament epistles spelled this out in Philippians 4, 7, Colossians 3, 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. I might read those out of order. I might take those in the written order. Also, a remarkable passage in, in Hebrews I think is worth looking at here today. So let's spend the time on this. Understand, that, again, how earth-shattering this is. This should have boggled their mind the same way that um, the same way that everything else this night has boggled their mind. You mean the Holy Spirit is going to be my teacher? An Old Testament believer would have no clue how that would work. Would never dream of such a thing. The peace of Christ? An Old Testament believer, even a Jewish believer of Israel, would have no frame of reference. What do you mean? The peace of Messiah? What do you mean? Because okay? their whole frame of reference for peace is the Messiah conqueror whooping up on the Gentiles and having secure boundaries, right? Having a border whereby uh, Gentiles aren't going to be invading in and, 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 and harming them. That's, that's peace as they understand it. David was a, man, a king of war and Solomon was a king of peace and that's just how it works. And, and they've, been, they've been for three years now waiting for this, this uh, conqueror to throw off Rome and bring about peace. Peace was promised, right? Do you know an Old Testament prophecy about coming peace? He's the promised prince of peace, right? Well, that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're waiting for. He's going to be the conqueror. We're going to have this kingdom and then we'll have peace. But he's telling them here, I'm going away. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to heaven. You're still going to have peace though. You're going to have a greater peace than you ever dreamed of, ever imagined. You're going to have an internal peace. You're going to have the peace that He has. You're going to have the very same peace of Christ. It's the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. So if you don't understand it, that's okay. Just embrace it. But you're going to have the peace that sustained Him in the garden and on the cross. You can have that. You can have the inner stability of your soul. Even if your nation is being invaded, even if uh, the economy is devastated, even if it's the end of your, of your society as you know it, you can still have perfect peace. And so this is the promise here. Not as the world gives. The world has its own form. The world uh, will offer peace. There's always a price attached. <laughs> At what cost? What do you got to pay to embrace the world's peace? Right? Like those bumper stickers. Visualize world peace. What is that? 
I think their visualization is not my visualization. All right. What's at what cost do you have peace? Well, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? The world will always want something back. It's always a price you don't want to pay. And you end up compromising. You end up damaging your soul. You end up um, serving the adversary, diminishing your... Instead of glorifying Christ, you bring repute, uh, disrepute, shame on, on Christ. It's a terrible price to pay. For the peace that Christ gives, guess what? What do we have to pay to get that kind of peace? Nothing. He, may, he paid it all. That's right. We receive it free of charge. All right. Let's look at some of these. Uh, a couple chapters over in John 16:33. We can bust one definition right here. The world will define peace as a lack of conflict. Right? Lack of problems, lack of affliction, lack of... of well, and Jesus says, no, that's not it. In the world, you are going to have tribulation. But that's irrelevant to the peace that you continue to have. Your, 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 your problems can be stacking up from here to the Great Wall of China and higher. You still can have this perfect peace regardless of the affliction and the conflict that you're under. So these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In Christ, you have peace. In cosmos, you have tribulation. So what sphere are you occupied with? In Christ or in cosmos? <laughs> okay. In the world, you will have tribulation. In Christ, you have peace. So where is your attention focused? By the way, the, um, these things here related to an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each of you to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. Does that, does that bother you? Shouldn't the intimacy with the father, you're going to have that same intimacy. I'm going to have you. I'm in the father, the father in me, uh, us in you. These things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. That's why I think there's a great value in the Gospels. There's a great value in the Life of Christ series. There's a great value in, in memorizing and, and thriving and living in the, the, the very discourse messages that Jesus gave. And of all the discourse messages, this one, the Upper Room and Walk to the Garden Discourse, is specifically church-age prophetic. It's looking forward to us. It speaks to us. All of it discourse for Israel. Our application secondary. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Israel. Our application is secondary. The, the Matthew 13 parables, quasi-Israel, quasi-church. We, but this is all church. This is all us. We, uh, we, can, we can thrive in this. All right, over to chapter 20. And of course, they're still clueless up until even the resurrection. Mary comes and tells them that uh, the body's gone. She doesn't know he's risen. She believes that they, you know who they are, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. That's what they did. And we do not know where they have laid him. They, of course, the, the adversaries, the, the Pharisees, the, their guards, their, uh, the enemies of Christ. So Peter and John, the other disciple, went forth and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. Now Peter was somewhat older. John was the youngest of all the disciples. Probably just a teenager. Maybe even just 14. We don't know how, uh, how uh, young he was. But always the young guy beats the old guy and he gets to the tomb first. But then the old guy doesn't stop at the, at the door. So... Peter, uh, uh, John gets there first, stooping and looking in, saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and he asked uh, Peter's nature, just barge right on in and get in the middle of everything. And uh, he entered into the tomb. But notice as they, as they observe all this, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed does this mean he wasn't saved prior? No, he was saved. Of course he was saved. He's been saved for years. But the, there were specific messages that he had a hard time accepting, specific content that he just couldn't bring himself to accept. Now he does. 
the doctrine of resurrection just was not going to click with him until he stood there in that empty tomb. And for they as yet did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. See, I, I'm thankful we're in Hebrews now on Sunday nights because that we're going to get to that unbelief of the believer there in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And we understand that it's a horrible, horrible snare, the unbelief of the believer. There's just there's things that you're saved. You don't lose your salvation, but there are doctrines, there are promises, there are principles, there are there are applications, and you just are going to have a hard time uniting it with faith and actually claiming it, living it. And that's what we're seeing here with these guys. They do not yet understand the Scripture that he must, have to, rise again from the dead. And so after this then, we realize that now then Mary got clued in here and she doesn't understand it either until he reveals himself to her. Pay close attention. You'll notice she, yeah, she thought he was the gardener. In verse 15. And uh, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. This is, this is, I think this is most noteworthy. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. How many ascensions did he have? How many ascensions did Jesus have? Most people that don't think about it just think one, you know, in Acts chapter one. Um, you know, 40 days after the resurrection, 10 days before Pentecost, he had the ascension. And then they read a little bit closer. They start thinking, wow, maybe there were two. And then they start reading a little bit closer thinking, could there have been a third? All right. That's what Cliff and I are debating. One of the things Cliff and I are debating on our monthly pastor lunches, uh, two ascensions or three. And uh, we know that he has to cleanse the temple, the heavenly temple. That's a work that he does in the heavenly places. We know that he has to lead captivity captive. He has to bring, empty out Abraham's bosom and, and, and take the entire paradise into, into heaven. Uh, we know that he ascends finally, uh, for, the, for the last time, he ascends in Acts chapter 1, where um, the angel then promises that he will return again at the close of the church age in the same manner with which he ascended. Um, and what's this one here? I ascend to my Father. What's the point when He ascends, as, ascends that John sees in Revelation as the Lamb standing having been slain? Where He takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. This appears to be a one-on-one -on -one ascension where He has a personal appearance before God the Father. We saw that in Daniel, uh, where the Ancient of Days, uh, the Son of Man, came in and appeared before the Ancient of Days. So how many ascensions are there? Well, here's a clue. Jesus says, don't touch. Don't touch. Okay? Not because she's a girl and he doesn't want to get cooties. All right? I used to think that's how it was when I was younger. <laughs> All right? Then I got married and I learned that girls don't have cooties. But... He says, don't touch, for I have not yet ascended. But just in a few more verses, what's going to happen here? He's going to uh, invite Thomas to touch him. And uh, when you glance down to verse, because Thomas is missing in the, first, in the first deal in 19 through 23. And then Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands... In his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came and the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. And, and to me, to reconcile verse 17, stop touching me and verse 27, touch me. To me, there's a reason why those, those things are being recorded here in this text. Reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here your hand, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Again, telling a believer to start using faith and accepting that which is promised. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So the difference between don't touch me and touch me is more than just eight days and more than just ten verses. 
I believe it actually signifies a, an ascension that had taken place in the meantime. The reason why the, the stop clinging me in verse 17 is because I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's no longer an objection in verse 27. I believe there was an ascension to the Father in the meantime. Anyway, we'll deal with that when we get to, to that chapter. We'll have some fun with that. Thomas means didym- uh, is called Didymus. What's Didymus? No, Didymus means twin. Yeah, twin. So, who was his twin? <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm going to haunt you with this until... I'm, it's not fair because it's going to be months before we get to this chapter. Who was his twin? There are no shortages of traditions. Church tradition, nobody knows. The Bible doesn't tell us. Um... The Bible doesn't tell us, but there is no shortage of speculation going back to the early church fathers and on into medieval times and all. I mean, if you think the, the goofy, dumb, stupid stuff with Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and all the modern stuff, they can't even touch what the ancient church fathers and other, <laughs> other Christians came up with all kinds of rumors. If it was halfway believable, there were people that, that believed it. But The most scary one is that he was Jesus' twin. Now think about it. Could Jesus have had a twin? Of course not. But he would have been without sin, or he would have been, I mean, it's, it's just scary, frightening, and ridiculous. Was he Judas's twin? Okay. Was he, you know, whose twin? Who cares? <laughs> the text doesn't say, if we needed to know, we would have known, it would have said. All right, I think his twin was a guy named Bob, which is why he couldn't be put in the Bible. God doesn't let anybody named Bob in the Bible. So that's how that works. But here in this chapter, verse 19, verse 21, verse 26, time and time again, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. You know, Paul's uh, greeting is grace be unto you in peace. Jesus, uh, his greeting is peace be with you. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And they jumped out of their skin. All right? They're indoors. The doors are locked. They're, they're, they're in a hidden place, a secret place, for fear of the Jews. They don't want to be arrested. You've been alone or thought you were alone and then somebody else was there. I scared Linty half to death this morning out in the parking lot. And she was sitting in her car and... Her window was rolled down. I went up to talk to her and I got to the door and I saw that her eyes were closed and she was praying. Uh, well, I don't want to interrupt her praying. That'd be kind of rude. So I just kind of stood there. I should have walked away. So I just kind of stood there and then when she opened her eyes and ah, might be dangerous at her age, but I, I scared her half to death. And that's what they're doing here. They're in the upper room. The doors are closed. How is it that a resurrection body, can it teleport? Can it phase? Can it walk through walls? You know, what superpower is this? Is it, is this um, Kitty Pride walking through the wall or is this Nightcrawler teleporting into the room? Okay. If you don't know who they are, don't worry about it. Um, but he's, the, the room is locked and there he is. Okay. Peace be with you. And, uh, he, you know, when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side and so forth. He still has the imprints. He still has the... the uh, Wounds there, identifiable as being who he is. Uh, Likewise, uh, verse 21, verse 26. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also sent you. So you have peace not for the sake of having peace. You have peace for the sake of being sent and doing what it is the Father and the Son have for you to do. God doesn't just give you peace so that, hey, you're cool. Wow, I got God's peace. I'm, I'm stable. I'm great. No, He gives you your peace to keep you stable during the instability of the Christian walk and the, the conflict of the ministry and all the chaos of naming the name of Christ. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then finally, verse 26, again after eight days, He shows up and this is Thomas's first shot at it. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So this is the great bequest for the church. We should have peace and uh, we should have it uh, day by day. All right, let's look at some of these. Let's take, uh, let's take it in the Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians order. How about that? 
Yeah. Just for the sake of... I believe uh, Colossians was written after Philippians, but... No, let's take it Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians. Let's take it in that order. So Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Different pastors have different opinions, and I keep going back and forth in my mind anyway, whether I think Philippians was before or after Colossians. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. You know, it's interesting because this comes... As you deal with uh, some, some church issues and how um, it's kind of the final word for application here. Pray for us in verse 1 that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. That we'd be rescued from perverse and evil men. That we want to have a fruitful ministry. There's going to be conflict along the way. The Lord is faithful. He will, what will he do? He will keep you from being tested? No. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We see that in the prayer of John 17. They don't take us out of the world. They don't keep us from our problems. They provide for us in the problems. So we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. You better embrace the Father and the Son as it relates to the Christian walk. And then deal with, uh, deal with uh, the church discipline you've got to deal with. In verses 6 and following, there's, there's folks that have to be removed. And so you have that. If anyone, verse 14, does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Discipline is designed to spark the shame which should lead to repentance. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Because guess what? When the shame does its work and when the repentance takes place and when they're ready to be restored to fellowship, you better bring them back to fellowship. Our congregation has that opportunity when we're going through the process right here, right now. We're going to restore a brother to our congregation. We're going to restore a marriage. I'm, I'm very uh, humbled and, 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 and amazed at God's grace that allows these things to even happen. So in that context then, church discipline and monishing a brother and staying faithful with all the conflict of a local church, may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. The role of Jesus Christ as head of the church in angelic conflict, in church discipline, in, in all of the turmoil of a, of a local church ministry, we have to submit to what's called here the Lord of peace. We receive peace from Jesus Christ. It's our bequest, and he continues to provide for that day by day in the operation of this lampstand. Remember, he walks in the midst of the lampstands. He's not just up there in heaven, feet propped up on a footstool, letting us do whatever we want to do down here. He's walking in the midst of this lampstand. He's holding the star in his right hand. He's got me held in his right hand. All right? And he is the Lord of Peace. The Lord of Peace. That's, that's the title by which he operates the local church. Lord of Peace. Continually grant you peace in every circumstance. And so you say, yeah, but. No, there are no yeah, buts. Well, this is too much. No, it's not. It's every circumstance. Well, you don't understand. No, I don't, but Jesus does. Good thing he's the omniscient one, right? You got the good shepherd, you got the under shepherd. One of us is omniscient, one of us is a moron. That's fine. I don't have to know anything. Jesus knows it all. And he will continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. All right, and I appreciate that. All right, over to Colossians then, Colossians 3.15. This is how it is that individual believers can have like-mindedness one with another because we have like-mindedness with Christ. As those who have been chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, the new nature that we're given and the new heart that we put on is imitation of Christ. All of those are descriptions of Christ. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other Whoever, and that's not a recommendation, that's an option. That's not an option, that's a command. Okay? If somebody ever tells you that they're not, they don't have to forgive somebody, they're wrong. Verse says you do. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
Yeah, but you don't know. I don't care. Whoever they are, they're someone. They're included in anyone. Whatever your complaint is. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Say, well, it's unforgivable. This verse says it's not. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The problem is you're not walking in love, and that love is sacrificial. You're looking at the merit of the object. Does the object deserve it? Of course they don't deserve it. But love loves anyway. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now this is where we learn how most believers, a lot of believers, I won't say most, but a lot of believers blow it at this step. A lot of believers. Because you say, well, the peace of Christ is his bequest. So we, we automatically receive that. He just continually gives that, right? Yes. However, it is his bequest. It is his gift. It is his continual provision as he's with us. When you stop walking with him, do you still... Uh, Take custody of the peace that He's supplying when you're not walking with Him anymore. See, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I think far too often, Jesus takes us through a path and we don't want to go there. And so we say, oh, no, no, I'm going this way over here. Well, when you go that way over there and Jesus went this way over here, how dare you say, well, His peace is no longer sufficient. You know? You went the other way. His peace is over here with Him. Walk with Him. See. And then here's another issue. Let it reign. Let it rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, I love the fact that not too long ago, we had a contrary passage to this in Romans 6. Do you remember that one? In Romans chapter 6, we were commanded to not let sin reign over you so that you obey its lusts. Remember that? So there we're told, don't let. Here we're told, let. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know what that means? It doesn't automatically happen. You have to let it happen. And if you don't let it happen, is it going to happen? No. See, I love passive imperatives. I love... I love uh, imperatives that use like expressions like let or allow. Make it so. Let it be. It's like, that's what amen means, isn't it? May it be. I believe it. Make it so. Amen. Well, you get to live out your amen when you let it happen. Let it be. And don't take steps that hinder it. Don't take the steps that keep it from happening. Let it happen. The problem is, is instead of the peace of Christ ruling in your heart, I want to rule my heart. I want my selfishness to rule. I want to be in charge. I want what I want. And so instead of the peace of Christ ruling my heart, I just submitted to my sin nature. I let sin reign. No man can serve two masters. What's going to reign? Is it going to be sin or is it going to be the peace of Christ? So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be faithful. How are you going to do that? Well, here's another let. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. See, I don't think these verses are accidental. I believe that verse 16 gives you the mechanics for verse 15. In other words, how does the peace of Christ rule in my hearts? By the word of Christ richly dwelling within me. I need to be, and that's consistent with Romans 12 and the, the transformation of your mind. Instead of, the, instead of being conformed to the world, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. You realize this is much more than... It starts with Bible class. Don't get me wrong. But if you limit this verse to just simply sitting under authority of teaching... I think you got a flawed and inferior view. You know, doctrinal churches are great for promoting doctrine. Study to show yourself approved. Learn, learn, learn. Study, study, study. Learn, learn, learn. It starts here. It starts here. Your rear end is planted. Your mouth is closed. Your mind is open. Your ears are open. You're listening. You're studying. You're receiving instruction. You're humble. 
But it doesn't stop with that. Class is over. You go out there. Then what? Then what? Chew on it. Let it richly dwell within you. Did you not receive it implanted? Did you not implant it within good depth of soil? Let it dwell richly within you. Is that soil then watered? Does that soil then uh, have the, the, the rocks removed and the thorns removed? Is that soil then tended? Do you add nutrients to your soil? Are you, what's the, the nature of your doctrinal garden there? Or do you not give it a second thought? In fact, you never think about it again. Well, I shoved it in the dirt. Isn't that enough? I'm going to come back again on Wednesday. I'm going to shove more in the dirt. I'm going to come back again on Sunday. I'm going to shove more in the dirt. Well, what are you doing in the meantime? Let it dwell richly. Chew on it. Think about it. Let your mind dwell on these things. Consider, wow. Not only did I learn this today, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to meditate on it day and night. I'm going to pray to the Father about it. I'm going to talk to brothers and sisters about it. I'm going to tell somebody else what I learned this morning. I'm going to allow it to dwell richly within me. And and this passage tells us how to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See. And so uh, I'm going I'm to take what I learned academically and I'm going to connect it with my music, the songs I'm singing. I'm going to connect it with my fellowship, the believers I'm talking about. I would much rather go to lunch and talk about doctrine and passages of Scripture or, you know, much more edifying than going to lunch and talking about the San Antonio Spurs and their miserable three-game losing streak. To, to uh, Although I am happy for Oklahoma. I, I'm sad because I, I, I like both teams in that Western Conference final. Um, um, you know, don't want to talk sports. I want to talk politics. You know, the election in Wisconsin yesterday. We can talk about that kind of stuff, but that's just earthly. I can talk about that stuff with an unbeliever. But with a brother, I can talk about the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. I can talk about being in union with Christ. I can talk about Jesus walking in this lampstand. All right. So whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's how you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That's how you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You're not going to separate the peace of Christ from the word of Christ. All right. And then finally, Philippians 4, 7. Context for this in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, why does he keep repeating that? <laughs> why? Why does he keep repeating that? Well, teaching needs to be repeated. It's redundant. There's value in review and correlation. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now, are you going to have a gentle spirit if you don't let the peace of Christ rule? With That's why I think you have to take it in this order. How are you going to have a gentle spirit to be let known if you don't have the peace of Christ? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Yeah, but. No, I don't care. I don't care. Well, pastor, you don't understand. No, I don't. How can you say you don't care? I've never heard a pastor say, I don't care as much as you say, I don't care. Oh, well, sorry. I don't care. (laughs) Okay. But now here's what I care about. Okay. I don't care about your problem. But I do care about you. I care about Jesus Christ. I want to see Christ work in you. I want to see the purpose for this test achieved. The test itself is irrelevant. The test itself is, is, a, is a venue. Right? And if you weren't blowing this, you'd be blowing something else. Because <laughs> right now your eyes aren't on the Lord. Right now you're not living the Word of God. So this particular test, whatever, it's a health test. You got whatever diagnosis. Well, if you weren't failing this health test, you'd be failing a, a money test. Or you'd be failing a relationship test. You'd be failing a people test. The, the scope of the testing is the, is the venue in which you're being tested. But right now, you'd fail anything because you're not walking with the Lord. You're not, your eyes aren't on the truth. You're not, the Word of Christ isn't richly dwelling within you. And I don't care what your testing is because God doesn't care what your testing is. The, 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 the point, the test is not the point. The test is supposed to teach you something. That's what I care about. You're supposed to learn something. You're supposed to grow. 
So I tell people, I don't care about your test. I care about you. Hopefully you have the opportunity to explain that. Sometimes they're just so full of reactor factors and they're so full of themselves and they're so selfish and you say, well, I don't care. And then, oh, you know, just made matters even worse. All right. Be anxious for nothing. Not one thing. The moment you disobey that, you just threw away the rest of the verse. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. What does that mean? That means even when you're voicing the prayer request, you are offering the thanksgiving because you know provision is there. You haven't seen it unfolded in time yet, but you know it's there because you know that at the same time in eternity past that God the Father crafted these circumstances, He also crafted the ekbasis, the victorious conclusion, the way of escape. He also crafted the solution to this testing. He also crafted the power and this peace and the strength and the wisdom and all the doctrine you need to endure this testing. And so you thank Him while you're asking for the necessary provision because you know He... He knows what you need before you even ask. It's already on the way. You'd have had it three weeks ago if you'd have bothered praying for it, if you'd have had thanksgiving for it, but you spent all that time trying to figure it out yourself. So be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. That's why I said you'll never fully understand it, not in, the capacity, not in the human capacity we have in time. You just know you have it. <laughs> you don't understand it. But you know His arms are unfolding you. You know that He's got you secure. Maybe you can't explain it. That's all right. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that right there is... That's the one verse right there that launched me into psychoheresy and the whole understanding of the of the the ministry of the psychoheresy awareness network and what Martin and Deidre Bobgan are all about and why it is so dangerous to unveil your soul to someone that's not entitled to it your hearts and your minds are to be guarded god himself guards it god has assigned you believers for the purpose of guarding your soul and then that is you have shepherds to tend your soul and so you may have women especially have an abundance and as god provides fathers and husbands but you have pastors you have deacons you've got spiritual leaders in the in a, in a flock in a place of protection in a place of safety because you're not just supposed to unveil your soul to anybody see think about it and, and, and it's hard. And, and I, I shared this in the, in the, uh, the psychoheresy class, my philosophy of counseling class. Because our culture has no concept of this anymore. There is no private life. The public unveiling of private lives. Everything is now, you know, put it all on Facebook and tell the whole universe what you're doing. All right? And just, there's things they're not entitled to. Your soul, they've got no... Who has, who has custody of your soul? Who's entitled to know your, your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your struggles? The guy you're paying 125 bucks an hour to? You're buying your friends now? <laughs> Renting them at least? Or is there the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Is there the one who loves you and gave his life for you? And the one who loves you and who has provided for the tending of your soul? Through a shepherd who doesn't care about your problems, but he does love you. All right? Through brothers and sisters that will love you because they're commanded to in, in loving Jesus Christ. That we love one another and so prove to be his disciples. I don't have to go pay a guy. All right. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You need to be guarded. And He's the one that does it. And He does it when you're in prayer. And He does it when you're in that prayer fellowship with Him. Anxious for nothing and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So you're not anxious over any of it. Father's got a plan for it. He's dealing with it. He'll unveil it in His good timing. Meanwhile, I need to learn the lessons that I learned through enduring this, this, uh, this adversity.
and be thankful for it. <laughs> All right. This is the peace of Christ. And, and, you know, this may be, this right here may be one of the best uh, evangelism tools you're going to have. Because there's an awful lot of people out there that aren't so worked up over their sins. And you tell them that their sins can be forgiven and that means nothing to them because they don't really think they have that bad of sins anyway. They're, they're basically okay. But they have no peace. They're living in, in total turmoil. They don't understand peace. They don't understand a right relationship with God. And so it may be that the your sins can be forgiven approach won't speak to them at all. But the peace of Christ approach will. So you just never know what... You know, where these lost people are and what they're being convicted of, how the Father's drawing them, how the Holy Spirit's convicting them, and what it is they, they know they need or they don't know they need. Okay, maybe it's peace. Maybe they look at you and they see the peace that you have and they go, I want that. I want that. All right? And I think that's a good thing. I don't think that's wrong at all. Now, finally then, Hebrews 13.20. It's not technically connected here, but I think it's interesting. Remember we had a title for Jesus Christ called the Lord of Peace? Here we have a title for God the Father. Hebrews 13.20. And when I think about all the titles, who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? Yeah, God the Father. But was it God the Father with which title? Now, was it, was it God the Father as El Shaddai? No. Was it God the Father as, as El Elyon? Was a God the Father as, you know, pick all the titles for God the Father you want. When we talk about the church age, when we talk about Jesus being the Lord of peace, we also have to realize that, uh, that God the Father here was called the God of peace. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. He wasn't the God of truth. We could call him that. He wasn't the God of love. We could call him that. I think it was the God of love that put his son on the cross. But it was the God of peace who brought him up from the dead. And here we're told it's the God of peace who brought up from the dead. Notice now, who brought up from the dead our kinsman redeemer. Who brought up from, That's true, but that's not what it says here. Brought up from the dead our sacrifice for sin. That's true, but that's not what it says here. He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. And so we want to, if we want to understand shepherding and how peace is the provision for, through shepherding, then it's the role of God the Father as the God of peace. It's the role of Jesus Christ as the Lord of peace. And, and this is what we see here in the resurrection of our shepherd. Not the resurrection of our king, not the resurrection of a prophet or the resurrection of a priest, the resurrection of a shepherd. And whose shepherd? Our shepherd, the church, the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And does he supply you all that peace just so that you can have it? <laughs> no. He supplies it so that you may have it, so that having it you may do what? Get to the work. Do what it is you're called to do. He equip you in every good thing to do His will. Equip you in every good thing to do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It just... And another aspect, I didn't even think about this when we were teaching philosophy of counseling, but the whole, the whole aspect of these, 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 these secular guys... They want you to, to have whatever, peace, whatever as the world gives, whatever self-esteem, whatever, you know, they, they want you to be on an even keel. They want you to be whole. They want you to be level, you know. And maybe you're just so doped up you don't know any better. But they, 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 they have you level. But for them, that's the goal. Then what? All right, so I'm level. Now what? No. God gives peace and equips you to go glorify Jesus Christ, to accomplish His grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ from Alpha to Omega. The peace He gives is not the goal, it's the means to the end and the, 
the uh, part of the equipping, equipping you in every good thing to do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His side. He's equipping us. He's working in us. We've got to let it happen. Let it happen. Not up to you. It's up to Him. Let it happen. Let it happen. So we did not finish chapter 14 this week. We got through point D. I thought we were going to do point D and point E. And I thought we would do point D and point E and the subpoints of E, which are 1, 2, and 3. I guess that's going to be next week. Father, thank you for your truth. And I don't mind a whole hour on peace. I could spend a month on peace. I could spend a year on peace. Father, this, uh, this day I pray that we would let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. We looked at some verses. We got some principles. We made some application. But Father, it can't end now. As we leave here, we've got to keep chewing on it, meditating on it, dwelling on it, praying about it, thinking about it, talking to others about it, singing about it. We had a lot of peace hymns in our hymnal, Father. We could, we could just take the whole day just singing about peace, thinking about it, thanking You for it. Father, uh, there's a whole lot of folks uh, worried about November. There's a whole lot of folks thinking that last night was good news and it's giving them more encouragement that maybe things will be better in November. (laughs) Father, there's another crowd of folks that think last night was a nightmare. Last night was a wreck on their side of things. Father, if if we're looking to politicians or we're looking to government or we're looking to anything earthly, We're looking in the wrong place, Father. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to embrace the peace that He supplies. We may not understand it because it surpasseth understanding, but we want to receive it and we want to make use of it so that we can accomplish everything else that You have for us to do. Thank You, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.